It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. A couple of years ago, I remember seeing a social media post in the sea of the tens of thousands or God knows hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of social media posts we get bombarded with every single year, depending how much time we spend on our phones or our computers. But this particular post stuck with me and I wanted to use it as a kickoff point for this conversation today. And to paraphrase, because I didn't save the post, unfortunately, it spoke to this idea that if if suddenly the massive people in the world were to fully accept and love themselves exactly as they are, to not default into not enoughness, to not feeling unlovable, to accepting themselves exactly as they looked, exactly as the shape they are, exactly the shape they're in, fully embrace themselves, that overnight, if human beings were to do this, basically the entire beauty industry, diet industry, a lot of the fitness industry, and a lot of the self-help industry, we're talking billions and billions of dollars, would collapse overnight. And I remember that stuck with me so profoundly, right? Because I feel like as human beings, we are subject to so many messages from brands and companies, our society, our culture, experts and gurus, trying to subtly or sometimes not so subtly, let us know that we're not enough. And if we simply buy the product, do the course, enroll in the program, do the thing they tell us to do, we'll find our enoughness. We'll finally find our worthiness. We'll finally feel a sense of wholeness. And I want to kick off this conversation with that stance because it stuck with me so long. And I guess the first question to both you, Karana and and Whitney is, knowing that there's this tangled, sometimes vicious web psychologically we have to deal with, how do we begin to unravel this for ourselves? Where the hell do we even start with that giant, sticky, crazy, and sometimes, you know, debilitating ball of wax that we have to deal with in our society? I think this is such an incredibly important topic, Jason, because just like you said, it is a big, giant mess in so many ways. And I think one of the first steps that's so important is is just self-awareness and doing reflection to really come to an understanding of where did I learn about my body? What in my lifetime has influenced me? Who has influenced me? Because when we can look back and see like, oh, it was that one thing that kid said in high school or those comments my grandma would make or the way I was taught in church or in school about, you know, my body versus someone else's body and all of those little things that often start in childhood, they accumulate over time. And it gets to this, you know, outrageous place where the majority of Americans hate their bodies and think that they need to be smaller. And that's just such a, a heavy, burdensome way to live. And it takes up so much brain space for one for one thing. And I absolutely believe the thing you saw on social media that you referenced. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, millions, millions of businesses would go out of out of business, would lose all of their money because so much of capitalism is banking on 
our insecurities. That's the crux of the ideas inside of capitalism in so many ways and, and white supremacy as well, you know, to just kind of make it real big picture. It's really people profiting off of our insecurities. I'm over here like furiously typing notes. So <laughs> I'm like, wow, I want to listen and contribute to this conversation at the same time because I am really passionate about this subject matter too. And it's not my main focus. And so hearing you discuss this when this is the big focus of your work is so exciting because it's incredibly needed. And for me on a personal level, I wish I had had more resources like you when I was growing up and struggling and and having disordered eating and perhaps body dysmorphia. I tread lightly when I use those words. I used to use the term eating disorder a lot, and it never quite felt right until I heard it phrased as disordered eating because I want to be very mindful of how I speak about those challenges. And I've also learned over time to be mindful of how relative these type of experiences are. Because to both of your points, I think most people struggle with their body image because of the way that capitalism rules so much, the media and social media. You know, it's a huge issue that's practically universal for, you know, many countries like the US. And the relative side of it is super interesting to me. Actually, One thing that someone brought up recently that gave me some food for thought was how I'm trying to formulate how to express this. So the word relative, you know, is tricky because when we talk about mental health, mental health is very relative. Like, what does that mean for you? When we talk about depression and anxiety, it could be clinical depression. It could be feelings of being depressed. It could be feelings of anxiousness versus diagnosed anxiety. You know, we try to be mindful of talking about this versus saying them as kind of absolute and going back to the eating disorder thing. And also being mindful of when we use those words to get sympathy from others or to bring us closer to others. And I try to be really careful about exaggerating and and take ownership over my personal experiences and how they may be very different from somebody else. So for me, it's been interesting because as a friend pointed out, no matter how much weight I've gained or how much my weight has fluctuated, no matter how like small or large I've been in my life, that's relative to me versus somebody that might be sizes larger or smaller. And in this conversation the other day, my friend was very frank with me and said, well, Whitney, no matter how many times you felt like you struggled with your weight and body image, it's it's different than me who might be classified as as obese or based on on my weight seen as overweight, you know? And I, I was reflecting on that a lot. And I think this is also interesting to discuss because since it is so relative, right? Like my my body image struggles may seem like less of a big deal to somebody else based on their weight and their body size, if that makes sense. And it's actually made it hard for me to have these discussions sometimes because I don't want to offend anyone, if that, if that makes sense. Like, oh, I struggle with my body too. And somebody's like, yeah, but not as much as I do. Or maybe you don't understand as much. And the same thing is, is true of talking about racism in some ways. Like we talk about things like privilege There's only so much that I can understand being a white woman. I'm never going to fully understand what racism is like to somebody of a different skin color or ethnicity. And so I think it's important to acknowledge those things up front, if that makes sense. 
That makes total sense. And I think I think so much of what you said is so valuable and especially using all of the things that you just addressed as a lens through which to look at the idea of body positivity. Body positivity is this like very mainstream movement right now. A lot of people are talking about it. There's a lot of body positive influencers, especially on social media. And so much of it is the movement has really been co-opted by thin white women. And body positivity was really started by fat black women for fat black women. And that's just one of the examples, you know, of of so many of the things that we as white people, you know, co-opt things ignorantly or not. And I think the things that you mentioned, it offers a lens for us to interact with the idea of body positivity as really more of a both and, because I think it's so extremely important for us to recognize the origins of body positivity, where it came from, who it's for, because there are, as a fat woman myself, and I use fat as an identifier, it's not a negative word, there are actually barriers to existing in the world in a fat body that people who are in what's commonly referred to as straight sized bodies, which is like bodies who are easily, you know, can easily find clothes in most, most main mainstream stores, there are true barriers to like living in the mainstream world and in a fat body. And the idea of the fat acceptance movement, which really is what gave way to body positivity, is the idea of literally and and figuratively making space for all people in the world instead of catering a world to thin people and, and catering a world to this particular beauty ideal. And I say all that because I think it's so extremely important to recognize that, especially, you know, in doing any kind of activism work, recognizing the origins of the body positive movement and, and really it's, it's even its roots in racism and simultaneously honoring our own journeys through our personal body image experiences because we all have them. We're all influenced differently. But we're all influenced by especially mainstream media, by the like the BMI, for example, which was never intended to be a scale of of health. It's been far, it's been completely twisted and manipulated to be something that it was never intended to be. (laughs) And really overnight, they changed one statistic on the BMI scale and like half of America became suddenly overweight. Like that's not a good indicator of health. And health is one of those relative terms that you were speaking of, because what is health? Who gets to define health? And I just think it's so important to recognize that we all have to honor our own journeys and processes through body image. And it is important to be mindful of the things that you are mentioning. I also have, I struggled with disordered eating my entire life and, and everything is relative because like binge eating, for example, is something that a lot of people refer to. A lot of people believe that they struggle with, like I binge all the time. I binge all the time. And, and it's often used in the same way that people overuse and stereotype OCD. Like, oh, you're just being OCD. You know, it becomes this like just a passing phrase. And so it's, I think it's so valuable the way that you're like really honoring the intentionality in your language and recognizing that it is relative. And just the same way, I think that 
we have to look at big social justice issues like racism, we do have to honor like where we are coming from in the process of thinking about it, talking about it, our own personal experiences and and not be afraid to to get it wrong and to be open to continuously learning, you know. Absolutely. It actually kind of ties into a conversation we had a little while back about cultural appropriation and what you were saying about how this movement started back with Black women and and the body positive movement there. It's so eye-opening because when I think of body positivity right now, I think of like Instagrammers who are usually white. And it's so fascinating to me. And I bet you a lot of women experience this too, which is why I'm so excited to discuss this with you. But it's fascinating to me being on social media as a content creator whose career is very based about around creating content, right? So like this podcast is content, our YouTube channel and, and Instagram and all these different platforms that I'm on by myself and, and or with Jason. And sometimes I feel... I don't know if intimidated is the right word, but and sometimes it's like a feeling of overwhelm or or feeling like I don't know where my place is because there's so many people talking about body positivity right now. And I feel very conflicted with that because A, some people talk about body positivity when I think they're like a really nice size. And I find myself thinking like, gosh, I can't even relate to them. They, they're insecure about their bodies. Like, wow, that actually makes me feel more insecure about myself and, instead of like comforted, which I feel like body positivity should be about people feeling more confident in their skin. But when you see someone maybe that's smaller than you or has flaws that, that you perceive yours as being worse, it can almost have the reverse effect. And also the amount of people, like you were saying, it's become so popular. It's a trend now on social media for women to point out their flaws that now I feel like cliche if I ever do that. But I want to participate in this movement And then like, you know, there's that other big trend that's been going on for a year or so with women that show like what their bodies look like when they pose versus what they look like when they're not posing. And even some of that is like you feel like women are forcing themselves to look a certain way. They're not naturally slumped over. (laughs) Like they're like forcing their cellulite to show stuff like that. And I start to feel like it's not even authentic anymore. And then are they just doing that to get more likes? And that makes it very confusing because then I can't even identify with these women or trust them because I feel like they're just doing it to get more attention to make themselves look more relatable. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm sure you come across this all the time, given that a lot of those women are not doing that work where you're doing, like maybe they're an influencer who's doing it to like promote a brand versus, you know, and and I'm not trying to like judge or shame these women for doing that. I, I do think ultimately it adds something positive. But I'm curious about your experience since your work is based in teaching people about body acceptance. In a way, does it feel frustrating for you to kind of, quote, cut through the noise of all of these influencers who are using this trend to get more eyeballs? I think yes and no. So like you mentioned, like you referred to, I think overall, it's good. It's well-intentioned most of the time, I want to believe. (laughs) And the influencers who are 
very popular for talking about body positivity. I do believe there is a large group of people who they are really supporting and they're really helping them feel better about themselves and see bodies and their own bodies in a different way. And that is extremely valuable. I think where I get frustrated is one part is the piece that I mentioned earlier. Like it's the mainstream body positivity movement is totally a 180 from the way things started with body positivity. And it started with fat acceptance. That was the focus of the movement. And that is not what you hear most body positive people online talking about. You don't hear them talking about fat acceptance. You hear them talking about love your body as it is. And also, especially for the people who are are really successful and body positivity is one of their main topics, there's often a really unhealthy distortion that's happening inside of their content because they've recognized, oh, I can talk about this and show my cellulite and my stretch marks and it will get likes, but they haven't really done a lot of their own deep inner work and really unpacked and untangled themselves from things. So they, you know, it might be like, here's a picture of me and all my roles. And simultaneously in this caption, I'm talking about the ways that I nourish my body. (laughs) And so like the language gets... It gets really tricky because body positivity and especially fat acceptance, it's really anti-diet in a lot of ways. It's really a focus on, on having an intuitive relationship with your body and with food and understanding that you can be healthy at any size and even unpacking the idea of health. And so I think it can be really dangerous when influencers haven't really done a lot of that work and are talking about concepts in ways that are still largely largely urging or pushing like diet mentality in really subtle ways like oh it's okay if you have stretch marks and also make sure you're working out five times a week you know like and it's really subliminal messaging um and that really frustrates me because <laughs> that's exactly what got us to this place in general as a society where so many people are struggling with their bodies is subliminal messaging. It's just taken on a new form. So that's one point of frustration for me. And the other is exactly what you mentioned where like the posing and not posing things, for example. Whenever I first started learning on my own journey of learning about body positivity and body acceptance and intuitive eating, I learned completely 100% from thin white women. And I never even thought about it. I did not even thought think about it. These were just the predominant people talking about these topics. And it was so helpful for me. And then I got to a point on my own journey where I'd come quite a, quite a long ways. It's like, okay, I'm body positive. Like I would identify as that. Like I, I get this, I'm doing this, I'm practicing this, but why do I still also simultaneously like struggle with my body so much? And it took me a while to realize this, the very thing that you were mentioning, like everyone that I was looking at who was talking about body positivity, their bodies did not look like my body even their quote unquote, not posed body. (laughs) Like so many of the pictures of like cellulite or rolls or stretch marks, they're actually posing 
to show me those. <laughs> like they have to bend over to show me that on them. Like they have to move their body in a certain way. And my body, it doesn't require me to do that, you know? And so I, I started slowly recognizing that there was this this separation between my experience as a person in a larger body and these mainstream influencers. And I think what happens for a lot of people who struggle with body image, and this is even true, I know it's largely I'm familiar with women who talk about body positivity, but I know this is true even in the realm of men who talk about body positivity. What's really, really challenging is when the mainstream influencers actually fit the majority of the beauty ideals. (laughs) And so, for example, like a pretty average size, maybe even buff guy talking about like body positivity and all bodies are good. Well, bro, your body looks like the people on TV. Same thing goes for the mom who has six kids who's showing her stretch marks from having her babies and, you know, always showing her jiggly stomach or posting pictures of her rolls. Like, it's so helpful. It's good. It's good to normalize those things. And at the same time, it's like, it's almost like an, like another layer of the ideal, if that makes sense. Like it's normalized in this ideal body, in this body that's already so close to the ideal. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, 100%. I think to me too, Karana, the, the nugget that I wanted to, well, there's a couple, there's a lot of things that that brought up for me, but, but the one immediate nugget out of what you were talking about is, you know, it brought up something I haven't thought about in a while as a man and kind of looking at body positivity from, I suppose, a a masculine perspective that I remember being a young man, you know, preteen, teenager in my 20s and going to the supermarket, right? And seeing like, like men's health magazine as an example. And, you know, men's health is certainly, I'm not throwing them under the bus, but the first thing that came to my mind of like, okay, all the guys on this cover are you know, ripped and big muscles and somehow they're all oily or sweaty. They're always just oily or sweaty or both. And, you know, the the headlines on the magazine would be like, you know, get ripped abs in like, you know, you know, 10 days or less. And, you know, here's how to make sure, you know, your your woman always orgasms in the bedroom and, and all these messages of like, if you look like this as a man, you'll be financially successful, you'll be sexually desirable, you'll be able to sexually please your woman, and you will have all the things you've ever wanted. Like those are the kind of headlines and messages being kind of bombarded on this, you know, and I remember looking kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, interestingly, that I've always been a really thin guy, you know, and when I was young, I was really skinny, really, really skinny. And looking at kind of those messages, not only with men's health, but all the archetypes of the superheroes, right? Like all those, all the comics and Marvel movies and all those things were just usually, you know, these big ripped, muscly dudes coming to save the day. And if you're not that, you're not going to save the day. You're a weakling. And having girlfriends and having family members be like, you're too skinny. Like you look weak. You look too skinny. I felt fine, but I just, I'm glad that you brought that up because in in my own way, I've had to do some unraveling of feeling like I'm not enough of a man. I'm not strong enough. I'm not desirable enough. I'm, 
I'm not something that a woman would want to be with because I'm too thin. I might look frail. I might look skinny. And and a real man, quote unquote, is like this, I don't know, Herculean ripped dude who's oily and glistening all the time and saving everyone. And it's by no means like trying to make light of like the struggle as, as a man seeing those standards is anyhow greater or less. But I've just, I've really had to unravel a lot of that for myself. And I just want to thank you for touching on that and giving me the space to kind of bring up that part of my own journey. Yeah, that's that's so heavy. I know that this journey of body image is so vulnerable and so deeply personal for all of us. And it looks different. And Whitney was speaking to this a little bit earlier. There definitely, I have sensed within the movement and ideologies of body positivity, there seems to have become some sort of, this is who is in and this is who's out. Like, this is who this is for and this is who it's not sometimes. And I I really believe that's a distorted idea. And simultaneously, I think it's possible for us to hold space for the truth of the idea that body positivity somehow can't be for everyone and really focus on valuing the origins of it at the same time. Because everyone does have such a vastly different experience with this. Like a lot of time, I think body positivity is specifically around like weight and size. But then when you think about people who are disabled, when you think about people who are neurodivergent, when you think about people like just, you know, there's so many different ways that we all are different. And those when you really kind of go zoom out on the current body positivity movement, largely it has become white people talking to white people. And so there's so many different groups within the global majority who are getting left out. And that looks literally looks so many different ways. And that's why I think body positivity in and of itself is not really the standalone like final destination because body positivity says we're all good let's accept ourselves let's love ourselves practice positive affirmations look at yourself in the mirror and those are all really really good things but the problem is the systems the systems that are in place that influence all of us and so it can't stop with like let's just you know, all hooray about our own bodies, that's an important part, but it has to go deeper and and wider than that as well, I think. In your work, you use the word liberation a lot, Karana, which I, I love that word because it is so, for me, it feels so potent and so deep and like visceral when I feel into that word liberation. And you briefly just mentioned, you know, affirmations and, you know, making eye contact in the mirror and and kind of the positive self-talk. But if we're talking about really going deep down the liberation path and, and choosing that and really just being fully aligned with it, what are some other methodologies or techniques or I don't want to use the word systems, but things that you encourage your clients and the people you work with to liberate themselves? And more than that, like digging into your personal story a little bit and your journey, your ongoing journey, you know, what are those methods or those ways that you have learned to liberate yourself and then pass that teaching on to others? I think that what we mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation about reflection is one of the most powerful tools in the process of personal and body liberation. The reason why, and and it can take so many different forms, and 
to give a little bit of my own backstory, I come from 20 years of dieting, of all sorts of dieting. I put myself on some sort of food restriction from, I remember like the age of five. And I come from a long history of disordered eating and a long history of being deeply indoctrinated in a lot of ideologies. And in the last, I would say probably six years, I've done a lot of personal development work, self-development work. And within the last year, I made a really transformational recognition that I was operating in all of my personal development work. I had been operating out of the belief that I was inherently not good enough So I needed to continue to do more personal development work, more inner work. And I never, ever, ever saw that. I had never heard anyone talk about that. And when I, when that clicked for me, because I recognized there was never a destination, this personal development work, this journey I was on of like spiritual self, personal development, I always felt like there was more to do, more to do, more to do, more I needed to heal, more I needed to fix. And then I recognized that there was a correlation of like, this is the the core idea of I'm not good enough as I am. And I really took a break, a really hard, fast break right when I realized that from doing personal development work, because I needed, I do not want to operate in my life out of the core belief that I'm not good enough. That's a really damaging place for anyone to operate from. And I had no idea I was doing it. So I put a hard stop on personal development, did a did a lot of reflection and came to the conclusion and, and realization that I don't actually think any of us are broken. I don't think any of us are in need of fixing. And that's one of the really damaging root ideas that runs as a thread through a lot of personal development work. In a lot of the language that's used, it's this, we need to fix this. We need to do this inner inner child work. I've done a lot of inner child work myself. We need to reparent ourselves. There's all of these like self-help tools and ideas that are useful. And by no means, I'm like, disregarding them. There's so much of it that is operating out of this premise of like, I am not okay, so I need to get fixed. And that same exact thread is what is the basis of the diet diet culture. <laughs> My body is not okay, so I need to change it. I need to fix it. And I'm saying that because when I realized I was operating out of this poor premise that I wasn't good enough, I really went back and started doing more reflection. So not really doing inner child work, but reflecting on where did this start? Where did this start for me? And that is really the like always the beginning of the work that I do with people is where did this start for you? If it's a body image struggle that you know you just felt for years that you hate your body and you don't like the way you look and it's too big, it's too small, it's too this, it's too that. Where did you first start hearing about that? When as a child did you learn about your body? What people, which people in your lives, which people groups, which communities? Was it school? Was it friends? And then if you can kind of think through that through your teenage years, through adulthood, there starts to become this really obvious pattern like, oh, people have actually talked really poorly about bodies, about their own bodies and about my body most of my life, you know? And so I think 
that core reflect that core piece of reflection is so powerful because what it does and the reason why i use the word liberation is because when we do that that act of intentional reflection not to change anything not to fix it not cuz we're broken just to recognize i didn't get here on my own I am suffocating inside of years of conditioning, years of other people's expectations, years of of cultural, social, religious ideologies. I got here because of what I've experienced. This is not my fault. I didn't do this to myself. And I think there's that's like a very sneaky idea inside of body positivity sometimes. It's like, oh, I did this to myself. I'm really hard on myself. I did this to myself. So I just need to change the way I talk to me. And it's back to that like self-blame. And liberation, for me, I imagine it as we're all working inside of a web of systems of all kinds of systems. And we can either be like effectively maneuvering the systems and utilizing them, or we could be trapped in them and stuck and being suffocated. And some of us have more privilege and resources than others. And some people have next to no option to get unstuck on their own. And so there's there's so many different ways that people, individuals are interacting with these systems, have capacity to interact with these systems. But liberation is really the idea of recognizing what has influenced me, how have I gotten here, and how can I now untangle all of these ideas that I was taught, that were put on me, that I was pressured to believe over the course of my life to get fully free and live from a place where I'm not just, I don't have to just practice affirmations every day trying to convince myself that my body is good enough. No, I fucking know it is. I know it is. There's no question about it. And I know that it's this system and that system and those people and this experience. Those are all the things that made me feel like my body wasn't good enough. But now I can detach from those things. I don't have to buy into those narratives because I've liberated my own personal self, my soul, my body from those experiences. And now I'm truly free to operate inside of confidence in this body, regardless of what anyone else says. That's so bringing it full circle. That's why I feel that reflection is such a deeply valuable practice to just reflect on it and see see what all is there. Wow, you're so eloquent and and passionate about this and I'm I'm so grateful to listen and have you share all of this because it's such an important subject that we really haven't gone that deep on before on our show. We've really just skimmed the surface of it and I just feel very grateful to have your your voice and it really resonates with me because this has been a huge thing on my mind for as long as I can remember. And once, like looking back over when I was really struggling with disordered eating when I was a teenager and just how I started to wake up to why I was doing that. And I went to therapy for that disordered eating. It actually, my journey started. And for anyone listening who hasn't really done much beyond their own self-exploration and reflection. I think that's really the beginning of it, but getting some professional help sometimes is necessary. And I remembered like finding the courage to mention it to a nurse when I was getting a, a checkup, like a physical. 
And I, I just remember feeling like maybe I should say something about what, what's going on. And she referred me to a nutritionist, which was interesting. And I remember going to that appointment and like just feeling like everything the nutritionist was saying to me was so basic. I realized in that moment, it wasn't that I didn't know the difference between like, quote, healthy food or unprocessed food versus like, quote, junk food or, you know, more processed foods. It was a psychological challenge for me, just like what you're describing, all of these expectations that were around me and the culture and my experiences. And so luckily, then they referred me to a therapist who was a a psychiatrist. And I think that we got through the or got to perhaps the core very quickly, like maybe in the first appointment we had. And she pinpointed it, that it was coming from a lot of the expectations my mother had of me. And so we spent most of my appointments after that talking about my relationship with my mother. And I'm so grateful that I went through that process. I'm so grateful for that nurse who led me down that path. Even if she didn't think much of it, it it created a really pivotal time for me. And that's when I actually started to get even more passionate about psychology. I had already always been kind of drawn to that, like learning about who I am and why I do what I do and why other people act the way that they act. So very interesting to me. But that experience, that year where I started doing all of that reflection was a big shift. However, to your point, I also spent many years and still do in some ways a little too focused on that constant adjustment, that constant optimization. And I've been very mindful of very recently, like probably just in the last month or so, I'm trying to stop using the word optimization as much as I have for all these reasons that you're sharing, because I think that we do as a culture become obsessed with constantly improving. And sometimes That may come across in our episodes, but we've been trying to be more intentional on the show about exploring and reflecting versus like giving advice and checklists and just do these things, as you're saying. Like a lot of people want affirmations and I think they're drawn to it for the reasons that you mentioned, which is like, maybe if I do these things, I'll feel better about myself. And so many people are on this like constant search for how to improve. And I think that is a huge core with the weight loss industry. And that's something I'm really curious about your perspective on. Because I struggle a lot with this in my work. I really want to assist more people with body acceptance. Self-acceptance is really a huge core of, of my work and the reason that I do it. And body acceptance is a huge part of that, right? And I'm still trying to figure out how do I respond to somebody who says... Well, I want to do this to lose weight. You know, I got an Instagram message today from somebody who bought a book of mine and she said that she bought it because she wants to lose 15 pounds. And I tried so hard to make this cookbook more about the nutritional benefits of that way of eating than the weight loss side. But I also knew that a lot of people would buy the book because they wanted to lose weight. And I was hoping like maybe if I can just like really help them and and, <laughs> and like give them some suggestions that might make them feel good, like it'll be less about weight loss. But there's been this sinking feeling that I have like, wow, how many people are going to buy something that I made 
or watch one of my videos. I mean, I've talked about a weight a lot over the years of my content and it's it's so tough sometimes because I don't want to add to that capitalistic weight loss, self-obsessed vanity side of things, but I'm still learning how to approach it. You know, what do you say to somebody who who says they want to lose weight? Because it's not like you can just say to them, oh, honey, you're perfect the way you are. You don't need to lose any weight. That doesn't help. Just like affirmations don't help. Like to your point, the reason somebody wants to lose weight or change their body in any way is the result of so many years of experiences. And it's not that you can simply ask somebody to switch it off and say, you don't need to do that. Or if you're binge eating, like you don't need to binge eat, like that's not good for you. It's even like smoking, which we talked about in an episode. You know, if somebody's a smoker, you can't just say, hey, can you please stop smoking? And they'll instantly stop. You know, <laughs> most of these things that we're doing and thinking have been the result of our entire lives. So I guess the next question is, how do you approach that when somebody really wants to lose weight and feels convicted? Like they feel like it's the right thing to do for themselves. Whitney, I love this question. I love this question so much. And it's so incredibly, I just want to like take a moment to honor and, and speak to like how incredibly intuitive and introspective you are about all of this. The question around weight loss is so valuable to consider. I actually put together a list of questions people can ask themselves when they feel like they want to lose weight because I was talking to so many people who were having the similar experience. And I think I loved the way that you connected the dots between these these like very capitalistic ideas of optimization, optimization, everything has to be optimized, optimized. And that includes like our bodies and the way we look and the way we function. And it leaves so little room for just purely existing and just being when we're always focusing on productivity and optimization. And I think when it comes to the experience of wanting to lose weight, feeling like you should lose weight. There are several components really at play there. Years of experiences, years of of stories, years of of even education around what health is and what health means. There's a very conflated idea that equates health to being in a thinner body. And I think health at every size or haze for sure is a very, very good tool for a very good resource. There's like, it's a, there's a book by Lindo Bacon. They have a website. There's a podcast. There's all sorts. They have lots of research and information to really learn about the concept of and the research around being healthy at every size. But I think when someone is reaching out to you or whenever, you know, someone speaks to me and and that's really the forefront of of what they want. Like, well, I really want to lose weight. You know, I'm buying your book because I wanted to lose 15 pounds. I think it's really valuable. It can be really valuable to engage in in just conversational questions and to really kind of unpack why do you want to lose weight? For me in my own journey, I started trying to change the way my body looked, like I mentioned when I was five, because I am, as an adult, I'm six feet tall. 
I'm a very large person. I've always been large. So as a kid, I was bigger than everyone else. And I heard in the conversations with all adults around me, no one was specifically telling me that I needed to change my body or that I needed to lose weight. But I heard the other women in my lives and in my community talking about their bodies and their experiences and or other parents telling their kids they shouldn't eat XYZ because it will make them fat, things along that line. I'm so grateful that my parents did not do that with me, but I picked it up even from other people. So I started restricting my own food. I started watching what I was eating. I started trying to like be really specific about my food intake and basically put myself on a diet from a really young age. And so I went through this whole journey in my whole entire life until I was 26. I fully believed that in order to be healthy, you had to be on some kind of diet. And I say diet, I'm not just talking about like keto or Weight Watchers or Atkins or low carb. I'm talking about any idea of I need to restrict or specifically curate the way that I'm eating in order to have some desired outcome or effect. That's what I refer to as a diet. And so I spent all of these years doing that because I believed that's what it took to be healthy. That you have to you have to follow these food rules. You have to change what you're eating. You have to watch what you're eating in order to be healthy. It's impossible to be healthy without that. And it took me getting pregnant, having a baby, and the accumulation of 26 years, or I guess technically 20 years, of basically failed diets, like the dieting cycle, which is feeling like you need to change your body, starting some kind of restrictive eating process, giving into the cravings that you have, binging on eating the things, going back into the diet. I was in this cycle of yo-yoing for 20 years, And then when I got to the point after having my son and I literally did not have the mental capacity to do any other, I like, we were doing really good if we could eat corn dogs every day because I just, he wasn't sleeping. He wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. My husband, like his job is really crazy. It was so much. And I, and I instantly felt as a mom, I was, I was feeling oh my gosh, I'm gaining weight, like, or I need to lose all of this baby weight. I had this this very heavy feeling of I need to change my body after having a baby. So I need to start some kind of diet. Well, I didn't have the capacity to start some kind of diet. And I'm telling, I'm sharing this part of my story because whenever I got to that point, I thought I was broken. I was like, I have tried dieting my whole life and I always fail. It always fails. I never stick to it. I'm broken. I am broken. Something is wrong. Like I do not have any self-discipline. I absolutely 100% believed I had a major self-discipline issue. And I had been in therapy for all kinds of other things from my childhood for like five years. And, and I thought therapy has always been really helpful for me. So I literally Googled food counseling because <laughs> I thought maybe there's somebody who specializes in this. <laughs> and what I found in that Google search was intuitive eating. And I never thought it's so incredible that you, Whitney, had the the 
thought and awareness to actually share your experience with disordered eating with someone and thought, maybe I should tell someone. I never thought to tell anyone because I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. I didn't know disordered eating was a thing. I thought dieting was the way to be healthy. (laughs) And so when I stumbled upon intuitive eating, the practice of intuitive eating, my mind was completely blown because I had no idea, literally no idea there was another way to live. And I'm, I'm, this is a very long way around answering your question very specifically, because when someone is, is struggling or when someone has the experience of wanting to lose weight, it's often related to their beliefs around health. I want to lose weight because I want to be healthier. I want to lose weight because I want to be more active. I want to lose weight because I want to be able to play with my kids and meet my grandkids. There's all these ideas. And I I had all of those same experiences. I've had them over and over and over and over again in my life. And I thought when I got pregnant, I was like, this is it. I am going like to change my lifestyle because now I have a kid and now everything is going to be different because it's for this kid and it doesn't work. It didn't work that way because it's not about willpower and it's not about self-discipline at all. It's so much more than that. And I think once I started my own process of like learning about intuitive eating. I referenced intuitive eating because it was it was the 180 framework that I needed to start unpacking all of my body image stuff because when I started learning about intuitive eating, it called into question everything that I thought and believed about my body and about food. Because weight loss, wanting to lose weight is almost always tied to like I mentioned some idea about health or some idea about how we look, that we should look some certain way. And intuitive eating is just a framework. There's lots of different, they're like, there's mindful eating, there's different ways to do it. I am a big fan and utilize intuitive eating in my work. And it really gives kind of clear steps. And one of the first steps is stop listening to the food rules. And the food rules are really what directly impact why we think we need to change our bodies. Because from infancy, we're born intuitive. Most all of us are born intuitive eaters. You cannot, you cannot make a two-year-old, no matter how hard I try, I cannot make my two-year-old eat broccoli. (laughs) He will not eat broccoli. Doesn't like broccoli, he will not eat it. He's intuitive and he knows how to trust his body. And then what happens as when we're kids Our parents introduce these food rules because that's what we believe is healthy. That's what we believe is right. And we stop trusting our bodies and we start introduces the subliminal idea of I can't, I have to trust these food rules, these rules about my, my body size and these rules about food because I cannot trust myself. That's why there's rules, obviously. So it it erodes our ability to trust our bodies, which then completely falls into our ability to trust ourselves in general. And so that's that's like directly tied to us going through life with these heavy burdens of insecurities and feeling like I all these people in the, in this personal development world in in the beauty world in the weight loss world they're telling me that I'm not good enough. They're telling me I need to follow a different set of rules. They're telling me I'm doing it wrong. They must be right because I can't trust myself. 
Do you see how that's all connected? I know that was like a really big answer. (laughs) Oh, for sure. And you know, when I started reading about intuitive eating, which wasn't until either this year, 2020, or maybe at some point in, in 2019, it was and still is actually hard because I'm still trying to let go of all of those things I've been taught over the years. And Jason, I'm so curious about your perspective of this because, you know, the two of us have worked in this vegan world and being vegan is very much about what you eat. And there's a lot of restriction and a lot of rules. And there's food police, which Jason, I know you get very fired up about. Jason has also worked as a chef and he's been, you know, consulting with people. And I mean, you probably can share so much about the industry side of it. And I think this is part of the challenge. I start to wonder like how much I've been contributing to these mentalities and unintentionally doing it because like you, I thought that was the way to do things. You know, that's the way I was raised. And gosh, I, I always try really hard not to make it sound like I'm blaming my mother or my father, both of them, as I've talked about in other episodes, the way that I was raised was based on what they perceived as healthy. And I trust that they love me and they were doing the best that they could with what they knew. And they were also under the influence of this capitalist perspective. And they were both very concerned about their weights. And weight was just like a huge topic throughout my life. And then, you know, you mentioned earlier about poor body talk. And now I'm so sensitive. Like I can't stand it when anybody talks poorly about their body because not only does it break my heart for them, but I know deep down that's reinforcing something within me. And I get so triggered by that. I'm like, please don't talk about how old you are, about your cellulite or your stomach, because then I feel like there's something wrong with me too, right? And so it's like that two sides of self-production and then also wanting to protect them too and like get us out of this crazy world that we're in because I want to be liberated for all the reasons that you've been talking about. And it's like, it haunts me almost every day. I I was thinking about it earlier. I'm about to go on a trip with a friend who loves taking photos for Instagram. And I'm like, so nervous about going because I think like, well, what if she takes a picture of me that I don't think is flattering and post it online? And I feel ashamed about my body. And like, I find myself wanting to, to see if I can change my body or wear certain outfits. And then like, I step back from that and think, gosh, like, why am I so obsessed with looking good on camera all the time? Like that That's just adding not only to my challenges, but anybody else who sees me online. Like, what if somebody sees me and is like, I want to look like Whitney looks like in this photo when that maybe that's not even what I actually look like because it's been edited or because it's a pose. And so I think all of us are in this together. We have so much responsibility and we can have such a ripple effect for better or for worse for people. So, Jason, I'd love to hear you dive in. I'm so curious about as you're listening to this. Like, what has your experience been as a chef, as somebody that's constantly teaching somebody about different ways to eat? And if you want to, also touching upon how you get so triggered by the the vegan police. <laughs> I mean, I over the years working with celebrity and non-celebrity clients, there's been a, a mixture of, I suppose, intentions and reasons why they would have me come in and teach them how to make food. Or in many cases, for years, I worked as a personal chef. And if I reflect on the, I suppose, the core reasons why people would hire me to work with them, it was either body image or the idea that eating a certain way 
would be more virtuous in terms of this is the healthiest way to eat. This is the the diet that's going to help me look better, look more youthful. If I really look back on those experiences, there was really a, a high motivation. And it makes sense living in a place like Los Angeles and Hollywood where people are are very much image obsessed and body obsessed here to largely unhealthy degrees. I mean, if we talk about all of the mechanics and and layers of conditioning and programming that we've been discussing this entire episode, you know, Whitney and I live in one of the epicenters. It's not that this doesn't permeate every aspect of American and many aspects of global society, regardless of, of the culture you're in, but Los Angeles seems to be such a microscopic environment where people are shockingly obsessed with how they look from plastic surgery to dieting to exercise to longevity i i mean people some of the people i worked with spent you know hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on this kind of stuff every year but but looking back on it i think there was this overarching mentality that if i eat and live and work out this certain way it's almost like if i hire the, and this is a very privileged perspective and very wealthy perspective you know if i if i hire the hot chef and he's doing longevity stuff and he's doing plant based and i hire this yoga teacher and i'm going to hire you know this plastic surgeon and and do this and all of these crazy biohacking modalities and and i'm going to do intermittent fasting and i'm going to do infrared light therapy and i'm going to you know I mean, we could go way, way down. It's a never-ending rabbit hole. But I got to kind of see the inside of that, of working with these specific people, of that they were willing to throw any amount of money at this thing that they really believed would make them more youthful, more vibrant, sexier, slimmer, whatever whatever those, virtu- those virtuous type of things that they thought they would do. And I guess the second part of that question, Whitney, is it's somewhat related in the sense that I think there is a mentality that if someone chooses a vegan diet, a keto diet, a paleo diet, 80-10-10, Atkins, uh, whatever the case may be, it's this idea for many people like, this is the way to eat. This is the way to live. I have discovered the proverbial holy grail that is going to unlock all of these things I've wanted. I'll finally be able to love myself. It's a virtue signaling to other people that I know what I'm doing because I've chosen this thing and this is the healthiest way to live. And that mutates into though, right? I think a mentality of looking at other people and judging them because they're not living or eating the same way you are. Like, oh, well, you know what? If you really want to be healthy, you should be vegan. If you really want to be healthy, you should be doing Pilates. If you really want to be healthy, you should be doing colonics three times a week. There's a million different permutations of this mentality, but I am very triggered by it because it's a very myopic, singular way of looking at life of my way is the way, the way that I eat, the way that I worship, the way that I, whatever it is, there's a certain amount of zealousness I think that people fall into of, I've seen the light, I found my thing, and now everybody ought to do it. And if you're not doing it, you're stupid and you should do it my way. Yeah. I mean, just reflecting more on this, I feel so fired up about it because, I mean, going back to the vegan thing, like there's so much infighting and (laughs) it always makes me laugh a little because the core of being vegan is about compassion. And yet we often leave out compassion when we're relating to one another because, and this I'm sure is true within paleo and keto and all of the, you know, like all these different different types of eating, whether somebody is eating a certain way for weight, like, you know, I, I've done keto myself and I actually find a lot of benefits to keto beyond weight loss, beyond the restrictions. Like there's actual medical 
research that indicates that it might actually be good for your long-term health and all that stuff. And I, I often feel like you don't have to be restrictive and you can get these benefits because we're all eating something. So why not eat something that makes us feel good? I'd rather feel, you know, non-bloated. I don't want to feel bloated, right? If I could have a choice, I don't like the way that I feel. It's not just about how I look. It's like, I like it when my stomach isn't upset, you know, <laughs> like there's, there's things like that. Or yes, if I had the choice, I would love to live a few years longer. And if this certain way of eating might give me a better chance at that, great. Do I need to become obsessed with optimizing? No. Do I need to restrict myself? If, you know, for me, like keto, for example, which I was into for a little over a year, I had to constantly check in with myself about what my motives were. You know, like I wish I had your checklist that you mentioned earlier because I could have used that and maybe this will be good inspiration for me sharing that because Yes, I was drawn to keto for the weight side of it. I felt overweight. I felt out of control. I experienced body shaming. Like there was a lot of things that made it very emotionally tough for me when I decided to try it. But I remember when I made that choice, I was like, I am going to find a way to do this that's going to be balanced. And I'm not going to make this about restriction. And I'm, I'm going to try every day my very best not to make this about my weight, even though I really want it to be, <laughs> I want to be smaller for all these conditioning reasons. And I'm still struggling with the shaming and all this stuff. And that's when I actually found intuitive eating. And I kind of like started to weave in like, wow, like be eating a keto diet does make my digestion feel better right now. Is that true? Is it? Is it like my brain's tricking me into thinking this. Like, I guess I allowed myself to have those questions, but also to experience it and then start to learn about what intuitive eating and then feel that out. And that that is like the whole point of intuitive eating is that each of us are on all these different paths. And I feel like there can be this crossover. And just like Jason, I feel so frustrated when somebody judges me for this or that. Like when I was doing keto, I was afraid to talk about it because people would talk about keto like it was the worst diet on the planet. And they're like, you know, you should be eating a high carb diet and you should never eat fat and all, you know, and then they're equally as restrictive. So they felt like so like it was just kind of ironic that they were promoting the opposite end of the spectrum. And I don't think enough people talk about intuitive eating for one. And I don't. I also don't think that many people talk about how hard it is to feel judged for your food choices because even if you're, quote, eating that trendy diet or that diet that everybody says works well for your health and weight, like you can be judged for every single food decision, which leads to it feeling so confusing and takes you farther away from your intuition. And I feel a bit resentful over all of these people that have told me just in the span of time that I've been vegan, the amount of rules and restrictions people have wanted to put on each other makes me furious because being vegan can mean so many different things. And I too have been that person. Like I, I'm also, I'm not taking myself out of that equation because there were times I was extremely judgmental about vegan junk food and extremely judgmental about eating a high fat diet or judgmental about a low, a high carb diet. You know, like I've been that person as well. And I'm trying to take ownership of that and move forward in a way where I'm no longer participating in that. And setting some boundaries so that I don't feel 
manipulated by the people that are trying to put their own labels on me or their own like right or wrong viewpoints about what I should or shouldn't be eating. I've totally been that person too, Whitney, my whole life, really. (laughs) Whenever, when I got married five years ago, I feel so much intimate awareness of the ways that I have, especially with my partner, pressured and shamed him even unintentionally. My intentions were, I want you to be healthy. I want you to, to live long. I want you to be your best self. And what that really was, was me shaming him and putting rules around him and doing all of these things. So I've, I've totally been there too. And I think it's one of the core reasons why I focus on liberation instead of just positivity or acceptance is for these very ideas that you're talking about. One of my very best friends who actually mentored me in a lot of ways in intuitive eating, she's now on a plant-based diet. And so she's an intuitive eater who also is on a plant-based diet for personal values, for reasons of her own personal values. And I think there is absolutely space for interweaving whatever works for us, whatever makes us truly, truly is in alignment for us um, as individuals. And I think it's, it can sometimes be a little tricky to unpack and recognize, is this my value? Kind of like you were saying, is this my value? Or is this what I feel like I am supposed to do? Because all of these really intense people are telling me there's all these rules and all these right and wrong ways to do it. Is this mine? Is this what I want? Or is this what I think I should be doing? And I think there's so much space inside the idea of of being intuitive with your food, being intuitive with your body, even just being intuitive with yourself and your life in general, that really does leave space for a lot of both and. And I think there is... I recall hearing a podcast by Christy Harrison, who she's, I believe she's a registered dietitian, an anti-diet registered dietitian. And she was specifically answering someone's question about the intersection of veganism and intuitive eating. And I found it so insightful because she also was advocating for the idea of, yes, you can, of course, live by your values and your personal desires. And where it gets tricky and we have to be really aware is when all of those rules start to come into place. And it's like, okay, whose rules are these? Are these my personal choices? Are these my personal values? Or am I doing this to make someone else happy? And I think that's that's the power and the idea of finding personal liberation, body liberation, especially in the in the way we relate to our bodies and and food, because the rules are external. They're always external. And using intuitive eating as a framework, there's a very specific reason why identify and ignore the food police are like one of the top top of the three, you know, I think one and two of the 10 principles. And gentle nutrition is the very last one because so many of us have lost a true understanding of what nutrition really is, have lost the ability to actually listen to our bodies and actually know, am I actually having a reaction to this food or is my body actually reacting to the stress 
I feel about this food. That's That was a really insightful experience for me personally with dairy. I always, for, let's see, since 2012, I have been extremely sensitive to dairy, extremely sensitive. And whenever it happened after, it started after I got back from a trip to Kenya and people in my life made fun of me. They laughed at me because of the reaction of my body to eating ice cream. And they're like, Oh my gosh, Karana, why are you doing this? This is so gross. And, and I was shocked because I was like, this is new. What's going on? And so I would still have the experience of gas and I would have the experience of bloating and out of all these really uncomfortable experiences and the people would make fun of me for it. And so it, it made it even worse. And then I felt shame around it. And when I started learning intuitive eating at first, I really I completely avoided dairy and I was making a conscious choice to avoid dairy because I knew that it wasn't going to make my body feel good. And then the further along I got on my own journey with that, I recognized that I had a lot of shame attached to dairy and my body and that I was still binging on ice cream, for example, even though I knew it would make my stomach upset, but I was binging on it because I was trying to avoid it because of the shame attached to it. There's like a lot of layers there. And I'm pointing that out because I think it's so important for us to learn how to listen to our bodies. And gluten is something I can't eat. Like it, my, my stomach, it messes my stomach up all the time, all the time. And I can do that intuitively. And it's not a it's not from a place of judgment. It's not from a place of righteousness, of better than. It's truly like honoring what makes my body feel good. And I think that's the power of of the both and that can be incorporated into really finding freedom in the way we feel about our bodies. I love that you brought up ice cream, Karana. And, and here's why. Here's the craziest serendipity. So in between podcast episodes. This is the second one that Whitney and I are recording today. We had a small window to you know take a bathroom break and do things. And I was like, after we get done with Corona, I am going to have some mint chocolate chip ice cream. I got a fresh pint yesterday. Self-admittedly, there have been moments to this podcast, I'll see my mind drifting and going like, I'm going to have that mint chocolate chip after this episode. Hell yes. But here's the question I want to talk about. And, and Whitney, I would love your perspective on this as well. With intuitive eating, I get caught up and I get tripped up rather some moments in the somewhat fine line in my in my being between what my mind is telling me I want and what my body is telling me I want. And 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 maybe I can just give a little bit more context before you both answer and give me your perspectives. But there are sometimes I'll have the perspective of of going out, say, to the grocery store or shopping for ingredients or whatever. And all of a sudden I'll get a hit in my body of like, go get cauliflower. I'm like, cauliflower? Like suddenly I'll have a craving or there'll be something in me that's like, you need to get cauliflower. I'll have no explanation for it, but something arises in my body of like, get cauliflower. And I'll make the cauliflower and whatever, make a cashew cheese sauce or whatever. And I eat it and I feel like, whoa, I feel so nourished and so, I don't know, like energetically charged up by it. But then there are moments also like this thing of like, ooh, I want mint chocolate chip ice cream. And I wonder if that's just like, an old pattern of me wanting to somehow psychologically reward myself after a long day of working versus my body saying, yeah, the mint chocolate chip ice cream is really going to nourish us. And I get tripped up sometimes in, I suppose, cravings versus intuitive eating. So how, how do you both navigate cravings versus intuition? 
It's interesting you bring this up because I got triggered the other day when I was on TikTok and I saw somebody... There's a lot of interesting things happening on TikTok in general, but but there are, of course, just like any corner of social media, people that go on there and share advice that might be completely out of alignment with your perspective or that might trigger you. And just like Instagram, there are people on there talking about food and body image on many different ends of the spectrum. And there was, a, I think, an anti-diet person. I actually don't know exactly what she did. But on, on TikTok, you can duet people, meaning you can find a video and then like comment on it through a, a video of your own and then like put things on the screen. And then, you know, like it's actually very creative. And so she did a duet and it was her basically pointing out a video by somebody I happen to know who's very popular on TikTok. And she she shared this video of this girl that I know talking about cravings. And the comment section of this were so fascinating because a ton of people were triggered and felt so disappointed in this creator that I know who was talking about something called the banana test, which I I guess I, I didn't really know about. And I, I didn't pay enough attention to it to fully understand it. But my my like surface level understanding is that if you have a craving, you should eat a banana. And if that satisfies your craving, then like you'll maybe eat that instead of eating ice cream. Right. I think that's what it is about. And a lot of people felt very triggered because they're, they were saying, like, this is body shame and this is restrictive and this is shame, like food shaming and all of that. And I could see that perspective so well. And then I also thought, but I know this creator and I think that she was just trying to encourage people to go towards a more nutritious food before indulging in something else. But it is a very tricky thing, Jason. I'm glad that you brought it up. And Karana, I can't wait to hear your perspective on this too. Because like from an intuitive eating standpoint, I feel like it's kind of like whatever you feel like eating is the right choice for you. It's not about like stepping back and reading the ingredient label. And, you know, for someone like me who did keto for a while, like I, I wanted to try out keto kind of out of that curiosity, but also to see what how it would benefit me. And like the downside was that I found myself reading labels and inputting things and it, it started to become a little slippery for me from that restrictive standpoint. And I remember when I switched over and got more relaxed about it and got more into that intuitive eating, it felt so much easier to just take a food and eat it as opposed to turning it over and looking at the label and reading the ingredients and going through this mindset of it's kind of like an internal battle of hmm should I eat a banana right now like do I really want these chips or maybe I should eat a banana first before I eat the chip and it's like there's nothing wrong with doing that I think it might be nice for your body to have the nutrients that a banana would give you but there's also nothing wrong with just eating the chips because you want to eat them or eating the ice cream because you want to eat them just as there's nothing wrong with you saying you want the cauliflower and eating that because you feel like it. So that is like still a tricky thing for me, Jason. And I'm glad that you brought that up. And I'm, I'm curious, Karana, if you have come across this like banana test thing, if that's a thing and like your feelings about this too, when it comes to like eating just what you feel like, is that really the, the simplest way to describe intuitive eating? Or is there any benefit to reflecting on it first and being like, do I really want this ice cream? Or maybe I should have something else instead of it. Because I think a lot of people really struggle with that. It's confusing. 
I absolutely love the topic of cravings <laughs> for all of these reasons. So I think the answer to the last two questions you asked, is it really just as simple as eat whatever you want or should you check in with your body? I think the answer to both questions is yes. And that is why it's confusing, notably. And I, so I want to like kind of unpack this a little bit. And I think this is the beauty of of my my personal experience and understanding of the practice of intuitive eating is that there is really a lot of space for for exploration. So intuitively, like if we we're just talking about the mechanics of our body and the way our bodies work, our bodies are designed biologically to communicate with our brain and let us know what they need. And I can remember from in all of my years of dieting of of like looking up certain cravings like oh if I'm craving chocolate it means I'm I'm just totally making this up it means I'm low in iron so really I should go eat some arugula <laughs> I don't know I don't know that those things are related at all I'm just making it up but I would do that all the time because I thought my cravings are indicating something about my body but I shouldn't listen to what the craving actually is if it was for ice cream. I've never heard of the the like quote unquote calling it the banana test, but in my in my years of experiencing and being fully immersed in diet culture, that was a very common practice. Just like if you're hungry but it's not quote unquote time to eat, chew gum or eat water. If you're craving sweets, eat a banana. So I never heard of the banana test, but I've definitely I've done that in the past. And I think I think this is again, this is both and, both and. And I want to I want to pause for a moment and like kind of discuss the both and a little like unpack the idea of both and a little bit. I have learned from some really prominent, really really helpful anti-racism educators and and specifically women of color around some of the predominant characteristics of white supremacy white supremacy as a mindset and a viewpoint and either or is one of the really really big ones and that really is just presenting the idea of there's only one right, right way jason you mentioned this earlier i think i've actually both referred to this in all the experiences of different ways of eating of there only being this one right way to do it. And the same is true inside of like all body image things. And it's a really exclusionary framework to to approach things from like you're either doing it right or you're doing it wrong. And so that's that's really why I I keep coming from the both and approach. And so when it when it comes to bringing it back to like cravings and intuitive eating, I think if someone is just starting out practicing intuitive eating, like learning about the principles of intuitive eating, I think it's so important to just let go of the food rules. And one of the really big things that a lot of people are challenged by when they first start learning about intuitive eating is exactly what you said, Whitney. It does seem like it's just eat whatever you want and you'll be fine. That's not really the core idea, but that is... That's what the first three to five principles really feel like because it, because it's about removing the rules around food. So 
Jason, when you go to the store and you're like, have this, you know, intuitive hit in your body, like I, I, I need to get some cauliflower. And then it feels so good to eat that cauliflower. That's intuitive. And craving ice cream at the end of a hard day, that can totally be intuitive too. And I think in my own journey and the way that I kind of unpack cravings and these ideas around like, what foods should I eat? It's more about the way that we relate to food. And what I mean by that is emotional eating is a very healthy coping mechanism. Like it's very good to have that coping mechanism. It's important. It's useful. It's helpful. Some of the challenge comes if that is our only or if that is our primary coping mechanism. It doesn't mean that emotional eating is wrong. It doesn't mean eating to, to numb or eating to feel better. It doesn't mean that that's wrong. It's not. It doesn't mean the food that we're eating, the food that we're craving when we're emotional is wrong. It's not. But what it does indicate is that it could be really helpful to expand our coping skills to where we're actually processing whatever we're feeling and really being aware of what we need, not just nutritionally, but emotionally in our lives and our relationships. So maybe if at the end of the day, like an experience I've had is for a pretty, there was a really long stretch of in the last like year or so where every single day at the end of the day, I was like, Oh God, like this has been so hard at home with my kid all day. Like I just want to eat ice cream and veg out in front of the TV and like literally do nothing. And that's totally fine. That's very okay. But then I started becoming aware of what was actually happening is my own tank, my like emotional tank, my energy reserves. I'm an introvert. And and I was depleted all day, every day. So I was using eating ice cream and watching Netflix as a way to numb my feelings. And I wasn't addressing the fact that I had real needs that weren't being met. So it's a both and like, it's both okay to eat ice cream when we want to reward ourselves or when we don't feel good and we want to feel better. And it is important to practice body emotion awareness and just kind of be in tune with ourselves. So there's not like a right or wrong when it comes to craving and intuitive eating, because intuitive is really just the process of constantly tuning back in, tuning back in. And it's totally okay to say, I'm really emotional today. I recognize that. I'm aware of it. I'm tuning in. And I'm going to choose to eat the damn ice cream anyways. Like that is okay. You know, I think that's, that's kind of my approach whenever I'm unpacking the idea of cravings, because it's, I really try and stray away from the idea of there being a right or wrong way to handle it. And there almost always is layers because we are, we are complex human beings. There are layers to our experiences and that doesn't make one more right or better than the other. I just, I want to say how much I love that answer and how much heaviness you take away from the process. And, you know, as you were describing the layers to this and, and how complex we are as humans, you know, this very white supremacist approach, there's only one right way of doing something. And if you're not doing it the right way in the way that we say you're doing it wrong, you know, sugar for me has always kind of been my go-to in times of stress, loneliness, depression, heartbreak. I've, I've talked about this on multiple episodes in some of the relationship episodes and frameworks that Whitney and I've talked about. 
And, you know, I think in, in wrapped up in sort of the emotional comfort you were talking about and the relation to cravings, I think I've always had this fear that if I allow myself to indulge, that I'll start to indulge too much, particularly with sugary things, desserts and whatnot, and that that will somehow lead me tumbling down a slippery slope of, well, okay, if you start to have your ice cream, your favorite ice cream after a hard day, what if tomorrow is a hard day? And what if the day after that? And what if you start acting like every day is a hard day? And then it becomes this mechanism of, you know, just just using desserts as an emotional crutch, right? But I think that if I look at reality, I have to trust myself. We go back to this idea of trusting. And, and I know that if I allow myself to indulge in something that brings me joy, that brings me some semblance of, of comfort. I mean, I love me some comfort food. I have my, my go-tos with my comfort food. It's by not restricting and denying myself and allowing myself to do it, I actually look at, at I, I don't know, my track record or my eating habits. I never really do go careening off the ledge. The only time that I've ever, I guess, had an issue with overindulgence is if I convince myself that it's bad for me to have it. Right. And then being a naturally rebellious person, that's my archetype is I, I am very rebellious. It'd be like, well, you told me it was bad. So now we're going to eat the whole fucking pint. You know, whereas if I just eat it when I want to and have a couple scoops, I never go careening off. It, it's never as bad as I think it's going to be, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And, and by virtue of allowing myself to indulge and have the things I want, I never spiral out of control like I'm worried I might. Does that make any sense at all? <laughs> yeah, it does for sure. And I think it kind of comes back to one thing that we started talking about at the beginning, which is like, what would the world be like if we had less judgment? And, you know, another thing that this conversation reminds me of is that common experience that people have when they find themselves gaining weight when they go to college or when they start dating somebody and or they get married or they're like in a comfortable relationship or or even during covid you know a lot of people being afraid of gaining the covid-19 you know like 19 pounds or whatever and i i remember people bringing that up and and this all concern like i got to keep working out during covid and i got to you know keep myself on track but we have to remember like we're all the entire world is going through an incredibly stressful time hopefully this isn't permanent and i think to your point i wonder like what would happen if we just allowed ourselves to eat however we wanted to eat and not worry about how long it was going to last for and i guess like even um with that freshman 15 that cliche thing it's like okay so what like why do you have to like get back to where you were before that why do you have to get back to where you were before covid or before your relationship and there's just so much fear and judgment around getting out of control and finding our way back to this, what we perceive as balance. And that's part of what makes all of this incredibly tricky. And gosh, I we've spoken for so long already, but I feel like we could talk about this for hours because it's such a complex subject matter. And one thing I would love to do is to put some books that have been really helpful in the resource section. And of course, I want to include the checklist that you made and your website and all of the great resources. I went to your Pinterest and saw all those amazing pins that you're putting up there. And there's just so much to share to continue this journey. One book that I think has probably been the most helpful for me because I, I tend to like research and different perspectives and I love history and, and putting things into context. A huge book 
that shifted my perception about our appearances is called beauty sick. And it really goes into depth about all the different ways that we are focused on our image and how if we just paid had less concern about what we looked like, we could free ourselves up to do so much more with our lives that would make a bigger impact. And that book was really healing for me in a lot of ways. I think about it often. And and that's kind of my go-to thing. It's like, is it serving me to be so focused about how many carbs are in something? Or should I just eat whatever I feel like? And then what if I can train myself not to be so concerned about what I'm eating and and put so much stress and time and effort into figuring out what I want to eat and just eat what I want when I want to eat it and free up myself to focus on much more important things. I love that. I love that. And I, I want to circle back to something that you mentioned and Jason mentioned as well about that, the fear of, of like letting ourselves eat what we want to eat. Like if I eat the ice cream, if I indulge, then I'll indulge too much. I think, and Jason, you perfectly like addressed how we can quote unquote prevent that. But what, what that fear really highlights is the underpinning of fat phobia. Because when we kind of go there, it's like, if I indulge, then I'll indulge too much and then I'll eat ice cream all the time. And then I'm like, and then when we, when we like really see where that fear goes, for many of us, the fear is getting fat. And if the fear is getting fat, then it it highlights for us like, oh, there's actually some really deeply rooted fat phobia inside my own like internal narratives and in, inside of the way that I'm relating to food and the way I'm relating to my body. And again, that's, you know, recognizing, oh, I actually have some like fat phobic ideas or beliefs or or ways that I relate with food is nothing to like it's not a slap on the wrist for any of us. It's it's a it's an opportunity to recognize, oh, this is how I've been treating myself. This is, you know, we and I have the power now to do something about that because I've recognized it. And a really, really helpful practice that that I just wanted to share with with anyone who might ever want to use this is when we have a a fear that's that might start with if or what if if i do this this might happen a really helpful practice i just call the what if practice <laughs> is just asking ourselves okay what if that did happen what if i ate the ice cream tonight and then i ate the ice cream tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and the next day and forever and for the next 3 years i i ate ice cream every single night what if that happened well the fear might be like oh my gosh, like I would be so unhealthy. I would be really fat. I would, you know, I would feel gross. I would, you know, fill in the blank with whatever the answer might be there. I'm like, okay, well, what if you felt that way? What if that happened? And then it starts to kind of get to the space where we can see what we've been, what we're trying to avoid. Oh, like, I'm afraid, you know, I I wouldn't no one would love me. I wouldn't be attractive. I'm afraid I would I would die. I'm afraid of, you know, like it, it starts to highlight the like underpinnings of like where those fears are. And that's where we can see, okay, I I can like go here and kind of unpack this this particular topic of like if it's my personal experience was one of my big things was I was afraid of getting fat because I was I wanted to get married and I wanted someone to love me. And I thought if I was fat, no one would love me and I wouldn't be attractive. 
And that was, that's huge. That's huge. That's, that's so damaging to like carry that belief. That's, that's such a hard way to like relate with my body and, and my relationships and my expectations and, and so many things. And that recognizing that offered me the opportunity to see, okay, so I have some beliefs here around like what it means to be attractive. I have some beliefs here around what is expected of me inside of a relationship. What's expected of me in relationship to beauty and my appearance as a woman. And I have some expectations around what like the the importance and value of looks and quote unquote health inside relationships. And so they're just really that what if practice kind of opens up this world of a recognition of what's really underneath the surface, what it is we're really actually trying to avoid. And that can be really, really helpful. And Jason, like you mentioned, the restriction is usually what reinforces the action. Like telling ourselves we shouldn't eat the ice cream is usually what makes us want to constantly eat the ice cream. And if we're truly free to eat, eat, we have the choice of any food that we want. And and there's no longer this scarcity attached to foods. And it might not be like a physical scarcity of like, it's not going to be here. It might be more of a psychological scarcity of I have to eat all the ice cream right now because I I know I won't let myself eat ice cream again. That is actually what reinforces like a craving for a specific food. But if we allow all foods like back on the table, back in the cabinets, then it oftentimes creates a much that's that's how we can build a much healthier relationship with food in our bodies and as bad like yeah and i think and to give a book recommendation as well the body is not an apology by sonia renee taylor i her book is so so powerful and one of the things that i love that she touches on is she talks about the experiences of people who might not be in quote unquote stereotypical or traditionally healthy bodies especially like people who are experiencing chronic illnesses i actually haven't finished reading her book myself but i love all of her work and i've heard wonderful things from several people and i think the fact that she does so intentionally touch on more than just the external and psychological experience with our body. She also talks a lot about the internal biological experiences with our body. I think that's a really, really powerful and it's, and it's small, it's a small, powerful read. Wow. I, um, I just feel so grateful, Corona, for your, your depth and your heart and how, how comprehensive you are with talking about and researching and sharing your perspectives on on all of this. I mean, I feel like we could just keep going for <laughs> probably another couple hours on so many different subjects, but you know, as we reach the tail end here, I do want to point our listeners toward more of your resources because obviously there's so many other layers of depth that we can go to with your work and uh, for any of the listeners who want to dig deeper into Karana's wonderful messages, her offerings and working with her, you can go to her website which is karanalin.com, k a r o n n a l y n n.com. We're going to link to that website, uh, her Facebook page, her Instagram, her Pinterest, all of her wonderful social media resources at wellevator.com. It's 
W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can go there and click on the podcast section. It will take you to this episode's show notes and all of our episode show notes where you can access the book recommendations, any of the articles, anything we mentioned for you to go a little bit deeper into body positivity, self-acceptance, and really doing this deep, deep healing work we've been talking about for the last almost two hours. So, Karana, this is just, it's been so lovely having you here. We, we so deeply appreciate it. And I, I, I'm sure Whitney feels the same way. We've just been going so deep with you. I really appreciate this conversation today. I really thank you both for being willing to really go there and, and unpack these, these topics. And for the listener, thanks for getting uncomfortable with us here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. And we will uh, hope to have you again for the next episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.